Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday from the Autism Science Foundation, and I'm beyond excited to share two new studies with you. They tackle topics that parents experience every day, they want to talk about and need help with. They are incredibly relatable, and it's going to be an easy job explaining them to you. The first comes from Friends in Canada. The title is Best Things Parents Describe Their Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder Over Time. The authors lead something called the Pathways to Autism Study in Canada, which follows kids from two to four years, about three years on average, then at seven years, and then at 10 years. This longitudinal study has actually helped identify trajectories and supported parents in their prediction of how their kids will function as they get older. They've also identified ways to support kids at young ages so that they can reach their full potential at school age. And now the study is being used to describe some of the positive attributes parents see in their children at each age. Because as challenging as kids with autism are, they are still funny and amazing and special in so many ways. And yes, we want to help them overcome their challenges and improve their functioning. But there are also things we would never in a million years want to change. Parents get that and they appreciate that. Now, some people believe that parents are just out to change their kids, but they're not. They get it. And this study provides a scientific analysis of some of the things that parents say about the best things about their kids at these different ages. They didn't need to do a separate interview to get this information. There's an open-ended question at the end of a standardized instrument called the Child Behavior Checklist, or CBCL, that asks, please describe the best things about your child, and it's open-ended. They can write whatever they want. On average, they wrote about 16 words, but it ranged anywhere between a few words all the way to 50 words. They can write things like, quote, they follow the rules to a T. My other kids could learn an important lesson, unquote, or Quote, they give the best hugs. It was the job of the scientist to take these open-ended responses, put them together, inventory them, and organize them in a way that highlighted common themes and traits. And because the CBCL asks about challenging behaviors as well, they could actually then take those scores and link them to some of the best traits to explain why people had different responses on best traits in that open-ended question. Are there differences in challenging behaviors that may explain some of the description of the best traits. Now, making sense of open-ended responses is always challenging because you have all these different responses. They inventoried each word and counted how many people use that same word. And then they grouped the responses together and organized them in ways that made sense. So at time one, the four most prevalent traits endorsed were love, happiness, kindness, and humor. That pattern was similar at time two, when again, they endorsed love, happiness, kindness, and intelligence. The pattern persisted at time three, when again, the traits were kindness, love, humor, and happiness. They categorized things into buckets like wisdom and knowledge, courage, humanity, justice, temperaments, transcendence, happiness, and interests. Love, kindness, and social intelligence, by the way, social intelligence wasn't really that highly endorsed, but they were lumped into humanity. Happiness, on the other hand, was its own category. At all time points, the largest proportion of endorsements was in the humanity category, like I mentioned, and the second largest was in the happiness category. 
Nobody ever used the word good perspective or leadership to describe their best traits, but they used a lot of love, kindness, and humor. Parents also used the word intelligence a lot. It's probably not because these young kids knew how to do calculus, but they did specifically cite words like creativity and curiosity, and that became more evident to parents as their children matured and were exposed to educational contexts that elicited them. This was also reflected in the way things changed over time and things that stayed stable at each time point. Now, wisdom and knowledge was um, stable from three to seven years and then again from seven to 10 years. It could be that the parents' perceptions of the predominant traits in this category, intelligence, curiosity, and creativity, had evolved over time as their children aged and were exposed to different experiences that might have been available to them in school. In contrast, however, happiness was stable at all time points, except for at seven to 10 years of age. This is when most children begin to spend more time away from their family and in school and in other activities. They get to experience the world around them and they may be not spending as much time with their family as they had before. So that might affect the parent's perception of their overall happiness. Now, how did problems like autism severity or challenging behaviors affect this? Children who had higher scores for problem behaviors were less likely to be endorsed by their parents for humanity. That suggests that parents whose children are regularly engaged in high levels of challenging behavior may be less likely to ascribe positive humanity traits like kindness, love, and friendliness to them. In addition, children with more severe autism symptoms were more likely to be endorsed for something that was called specific skills. Specifically, Parents may have mentioned skills like memory and gross motor and some academic skills and early learning abilities to acknowledge that despite severe autism, their children also had these strengths. So the authors wrapped up this study by saying, quote, what was perhaps the most striking was the tone of the parental responses to the best things request, with many parents offering comments like a bundle of joy and energy. The best thing is his mind and heart. She's a true gift in my life. And he has a super great heart. They got the sense that the parents didn't really have to think hard in order to identify positive traits from their children. Rather, they readily recognized these traits and were both proud and eager to share them. The study reminds us that regardless of a diagnosis, a test score, or any behavioral challenges, we need to look at individual strengths and their best things to support them to live meaningful and fulfilling lives. And that means the way that the person with ASD sees them as meaningful and fulfilling. Now, the other study I want to mention ties into this study of kids in preschool because it used a similar kind of qualitative analysis of open-ended responses on how parents can support the transition from preschool or early intervention to regular school. I'm proud to say that this study was conducted by my friends at Curtin University in Australia, who helped write the employment policy brief, which like the last study I just mentioned, stressed the importance of focusing on strengths in people with ASD rather than making them change their abilities to fit the workforce. So they get this concept and brought it in to this, these focus groups about what are some of the positive things that parents can do and the EI system can do to make the transition from preschool or EI to regular school a little bit easier and more successful. Again, they used a similar analysis to take words that came up over and over again and then organize them in their themes. These themes were 
One, building the child. Two, building the parents. Three, building the receiving school. And four, connecting the system. I'm sure if you've ever had a child that's transitioned from early intervention to kindergarten or first grade, you know what I'm talking about. When we say building the child, it means helping the child cope with change and develop a routine, develop the child's independence by also helping manage anxiety and meltdowns, and understanding the child as an individual. The other thing was building the system for parents, right? So parents identified that they needed to be actively involved in advocating for their child. They couldn't rely on anyone else, and so they needed support to do that. They also needed structures for connecting parents to services. You can't just hand a flyer to them and send them on their way. They also indicated that supporting parents to help manage anxiety and challenges in their child, which was part of building the child, is important. And even the last one, which was upskilling parents to support their child. I know that not everyone has a great relationship with their school district, but I'm pleading with you to try because other studies have shown that EI staff felt it was essential to build a collaborative relationship with parents. The other components, which was building the receiving school, was first associated with enhancing the capacity of the receiving school to accommodate, engage with the child, their family, and even the EI staff prior to, during, and following the transition is really one of the most significant factors. It also included within-school communication considerations, mainstream versus special school, adjusting the school environment, classroom supports, or lack thereof. Having the schools know about ASD was also identified as important to building the receiving school. And this meant parents felt like they wanted to help with all of these things or felt like different programs should be in place to help the school. Now, the very last thing was linked to communication, integration, and transition. It included early transition planning, handover time to adjust, like don't just have them start at the first day of school, maybe give them a week maybe before school starts, communication and collaboration with stakeholders, neurodiversity and a culture of acceptance, utilizing a strengths-based approach, which we already talked about, and EI staff supporting the receiving school. Also, there was cultural and linguistically diverse considerations formed within this theme. For parents, being able to talk with teachers and discuss strategies, enabling their child to be more successfully integrated, really meant that their child's needs were met and it supported the transition. So if you have a young child, take these lessons on your side to build the best relationship you can with the schools, both of them. Try to help be the conduit or advocate to be a conduit on the other side between the EI providers and the school. Advocate to build up the infrastructure of the receiving school. You might have to be the intermediary between the EI and preschool to the regular school. And of course, most of these families were in the mainstream schools. There was a mention of the difference between mainstream and special needs schools. But parents really need to know what to expect in order to properly advocate and know what's going on and know what's going to happen. So parents, you know your kids are amazing and have great qualities. Now you can help them get the best school experience possible from the very earliest time point. Thank you all for listening. There will be no ASF podcast next week in recognition of President's Day, but I hope you have an amazing weekend.